You haven't forgotten about Mallory the Bully, right? Good, because he is the main character in the transformation from free market virtual money to fiat money. For a while, he posed as a mere competitor to your services of custody and coinage, but now he is revealing his true colors. While it was pretty difficult for him to take over the very decentralized process of people exchanging gold nuggets, there are now a few big, public, trusted, vulnerable entities that he can easily seize control of. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. Um, uh, we've got a great read today. We are continuing with the Discovering Bitcoin series on Bitcoin Magazine by Giacomo Zucco. Uh, and this will be part four, A Wrong Turn. And this is about the corruption and monopolization of the monetary system that eventually led from the assets that worked best as money. And we will get to that on um, a couple of announcements real quick. First, stack your sats with swanbitcoin.com slash guy. If you don't, you fail. Uh, <laughs> uh, there has been some crazy stuff on the news front with MicroStrategy, a huge investment um, and like assets management firm that has put a shockingly uh, significant uh, cash investment into Bitcoin. Uh, and we're going to be talking about that tomorrow. I'm going to be doing a guys take episode. So subscribe. Um, if you're listening to this on the Bitcoin magazine or the Let's Talk Bitcoin network, excuse me, um, uh, this will not be published on that network. So be sure to subscribe if you want to hear about that one, because this is a huge, huge development. And I want to talk about exactly why uh, also, just a thank you. I got off a hour, couple hours ago from uh, Peter McCormick. I was on What's Bit What Bitcoin Did podcast with uh, Colin and Ben uh, from the What the Fuck Happened in 1971 crew, and uh, we had an awesome discussion. Just a great show. So uh, eager to share that out when that drops. So keep an ear out for that. It's going to be next week. Um, but. For now, let's go ahead and just jump right into the read. I don't want to waste any more time because this is a really good one and I want to hit a little bit of guy's take before I finish the day out. Again, this is Giacomo Zucco's, uh, uh, pu published on Bitcoin Magazine. This is the Discovering Bitcoin series and we are hitting part four today and it is titled A Wrong Turn. A new plan is needed. This is the fourth installment of Bitcoiner Giacomo Zucco's series, Discovering Bitcoin, a brief overview from cavemen to the Lightning Network. Read the introduction to his series, part one about time, part two about people, and part three, introducing money. Links provided. In this next installment of the Discovering Bitcoin series, we will build on the previously acquired strategies of optimizing hardness, scaleness, and darkness to explore concepts of virtualization and decentralization. The path toward virtualization. The question where will bring us to the quite unhappy end of plan A and the beginning of plan B. 
Thanks to your noble efforts, everybody is now using gold and silver as money. With such a track record, you decide monetary innovation is your actual vocation. You sell your fishing fleet to focus on that exclusively. The next innovation you introduce is coinage. While people used to sustain important verification costs when receiving metal money, now you can pre-sign standard measures. Obviously, you ask a fee for such a service called seniorage, and everybody can just cheaply verify your signature. Coinage, which is particularly interesting for Bitcoin since it's similar to the dangerous practice known as SPV, which we will discuss later in part 7, increases hardness locally since lower verification costs mean higher forgery costs for occasional counterfeiters. But while it may increase locally, hardness may also decrease globally. Now you have the ability to inflate the money supply with a trick called debasement. Just put less gold in your coins than you originally promised, secretly increasing your seniorage fee. Next, you invent custody. Instead of securing their coins directly, people can entrust them to you in exchange for convertible certificates. Since you leverage economies of scale and specialization, you've become quite efficient at securing other people's money. For a fee, of course. Custody increases scaleness dramatically. So much so that it helps the convergence process to reach its ultimate completion. Having to store just paper instead of physical gold, not very divisible, and physical silver, not very portable, people converge over the former, the harder money, demonetizing the latter, the monetary premium of which will eventually collapse. But global darkness and hardness may instead decrease. In the redeeming phase, you could easily track and censor transactions, or you may practice what is called fractional reserve, keeping less collateral than issued certificates, basically inflating the virtual supply. Complete Virtualization Your next proposal is complete virtualization. Funny note, Bitcoin is often called virtual money, but money has already been virtual for centuries. It's the merging of custody and coinage. Instead of just entrusting you with some signed coins in order to redeem them later themselves, people can start trading your signed paper certificates directly, using them as a medium of exchange. You've finally invented banknotes. It's not commodity money anymore. It is some kind of information money. Not yet what we will call fiat money, though. It's still a form of free market innovation, emerged from society without any kind of legal imposition, provided by different competing actors and collateralized with physical gold in custody. Sure, you could abuse censorship, debasement, and fractional reserve if you wanted. But you aren't Mallory, our bully from Part 3. You're a reputable professional. And these bad incentives are mitigated by the competitive pressure of several other providers. We could consider the process of virtualization as an extreme case of specialization. After money enabled the division of labor, 
money management itself became a specialized job. It's a centralizing process. Collateral physically moves from many users to the few service providers. Ultimately, the where question isn't really geographical in nature. It's more about control. The provider may have vaults or mints distributed across the world, but their control is centralized. A wrong turn. Monopoly. You haven't forgotten about Mallory the bully, right? Good, because he is the main character in the transformation from free market virtual money to fiat money. For a while, he posed as a mere competitor to your services of custody and coinage, but now he is revealing his true colors. While it was pretty difficult for him to take over the very decentralized process of people exchanging gold nuggets, there are now a few big, public, trusted, vulnerable entities he can easily seize control of. First, he uses threats of physical violence to establish a compulsory monopoly on virtual money, or even on money tout court, regardless of whether or not the physical variant is out of fashion anyway by now. Ruling all the alternative money services, including yours, illegal. Then he forces everyone to always accept his particular brand of virtual money as payment at face value. He likes to call this obligation legal tender laws. Finally, he abolishes any kind of redeemability of his certificates in actual gold collateral. Now the supply of money is politically defined by Mallory-appointed central bankers who can finally implement, quote, monetary policies to shape the economy based on his political goals. While the demand for money is politically driven, since people are forced to own the legal tender to pay taxes to Mallory and are forced to accept it at nominal value when they trade. Until now, in the context of free market virtual money, competition and market forces could have somehow still incentivized banknote issuers to behave. With fiat money, thanks to legal monopoly and legal tender laws, there's no competition anymore. At least not within the context of Mallory's jurisdiction. There are other, smaller Mallories around the world, but they all joined the big Mallory in a huge cartel. The Internet and Digitalization Enter the digital era. With e-commerce, people need to transact over the internet, but they can't exchange paper there. Mallory's fiat money, which is already virtual, migrates to digital versions that are orders of magnitude more efficient. Scaleness increases again. Somebody could argue that in leveraging digital technologies, scaleness would have gone up even more in the competitive context of digital free market money, since a monopoly keeps costs high while keeping efficiency, transparency, and innovation rates low. But since things are improving anyway, nobody complains too much. But hardness and darkness decrease dramatically. The money supply can be manipulated to degrees never seen before, and Mallory can track and censor transactions to Orwellian extents. As a money entrepreneur, you try to leverage the same innovations that made Mallory's money so powerful in order to bring back free market representative money 
only this time on digital steroids. Your hope is that the very same internet that Mallory leveraged to increase his power could also be leveraged by you to bypass, ignore, and circumvent Mallory's impositions. You launch a startup called eGold. This is all completely fictional, of course. Your service allows pseudonymous users to open accounts denominated in grams of physical gold, freely transacting among them. You set it up using technological best practices, and you devise innovative governance structures. After some time, your system has grown to 5 million accounts, processing the equivalent of 2 billion Mallory dollars per year. But despite your great execution and the positive market reception, all of your technical and legal skills cannot protect you from Mallory's violence forever. Eventually, he manages to shut down your business and send you to jail, discouraging other entrepreneurs from following your example. They pivot to some traditional Mallory-approved digital fiat services instead. Decentralization. A new hope? During the time you serve in jail as a retribution for daring to try to provide better money than Mallory's, you realize something. It was very easy for Mallory to send you to jail, close your company, and shut down its servers because the personal, legal, and technical structures were all easy targets. What if this time you replace your official identity with some internet pseudonym? The Japanese-sounding Satoshi may be just as good a choice as any. Your for-profit company with a free and open-source project and your server with a peer-to-peer -peer protocol. Then Mallory would have no CEO to incarcerate, no legal entity to seize, and no server to shut down. The idea is to reverse the centralization trend that has prevailed until now while retaining most of the advantages of technological progress that enabled e-commerce and e-finance. So far, you've learned that the process of money virtualization greatly increases its scaleness, that the same process enables violent monopolies, which in turn greatly decrease hardness and darkness, especially in the digital era, and that you cannot effectively fight monopolization using centralized entities. You have to aim for decentralized solutions. But how can you actually decentralize asset issuance and ownership? We will answer the first of these two questions in Discovering Bitcoin Part 5, Digital Scarcity. All right, and that wraps up Part 4, uh, A Wrong Turn. And uh, I want to get into Guy's take on this really quick, so let's go ahead and jump into our sponsor for the show, and we will get back into it. Okay, so this piece, again, part four of the Discovering Bitcoin series. Uh, this, I really am enjoying the series. I hope you guys are too, um, because this is such a fun little walk through the entire process of monetization and kind of the entire evolutionary uh, history of money um, and uh, it's funny how quickly we're skipping over like parts of it like this is basically this is an extremely condensed version of about 5,000 years of history or something like that because um, coinage was around for an ex insanely amount of uh, long amount of time 
uh, and then you had uh, custody and um, and then eventually banknotes um, that were all just you had you ended up with complete uh, virtualization and that's actually a really really new invention that's this is like in, in the scale of history like when you kind of look at monetary and uh, just human history in general um, it's kind of a blip here at the end of it so there's been a massive amount of uh, steps covered in like the last 200 years essentially and uh, prior to the monopolization of fiat money now money was always money is such a powerful tool and uh even coinage and stuff like like he talked about with like seniorage and the ability to essentially debase your currency like this is something that has been going on for thousands and thousands of years like this is not something new we, like people were like kings and queens and princes, uh, princes, all the of royalty and uh, religious leaders and stuff of history were all perfectly aware of the incredible power to say, this is one coin of silver and only put in 95% of a coin. Like, like it was, it's so clear and obvious the purchasing power that is accomplished from this and you have you can see currencies that have collapsed and have you know not kept their value and been debased at an excruciating rate but even when you look back it's funny like we we it's easier to see 20 30 years 50 years 100 years in history and think oh this all happened at once but not realize that you know the uh, when the Solidus um, was, uh, I think the Solidus was actually the replacement, but when the, the, the Roman currency or whatever was debased until it finally collapsed and had to be replaced with the Solidus, is that you, it, it took like 80 years. Like it took an insanely long amount of time because the ability to verify still remained. The speed with which we destroy currencies today is almost unheard of, uh, and there's a there's a study. Um, I think it's the one from Cato uh, Institute. Um, it's like it's Steve Hanka and uh, Nicholas Cruz Cruz or something like that. Um, I don't I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. Um, I think this is the paper that I'm thinking of. Um, but it breaks down hyperinflationary events. It's the one, uh, I think it's the one referenced in the Bitcoin standard by Seyfedine. Um, But uh, there's essentially in a history of hyperinflationary events that truly like had sharp percentage decreases in value on a daily basis, essentially all of them have happened in like the last 100 to 150 years. It is... It is truly a monetary phenomenon that has happened post the total virtualization of currency. And that's what Giacomo is talking about here. And what, what happened is that we got the, we, we massively scaled the currency. We massively increased the scaleness of the technology of our money. But at the same time, the way that we accomplished the scaleness was by destroying its hardness and now, like now in digitization, um, uh, increasingly its darkness. Essentially, the centralization of the medium by which we used the money 
Um, in this case, uh, you know, banknotes, essentially the virtual, a virtual note that is supposed to represent money, uh, that gave us benefits A and B and destroyed C and D for those effects. Because the economy became so much faster, so much more um, uh, mobile, and, and I don't mean like mobile, like mobile phones, but like just active, like you could, things moved and adjusted far quicker. Like after we got out of the agrarian age and we went into the industrial age, like we were producing so much additional value and so much excess that we had industries um, that just, I mean, we, we just created entire new industries over and over and over again. Um, and, and look at today, like just like 200 or so years ago, something like 90% of the population were farmers. Like that was essentially the degree of specialization is what you farmed and which kind of food you raised or made. Like so much of the economy was just essentially one subset of jobs. And then incomes manufacturing, incomes automobiles, incomes uh, uh, machinery, and uh, a whole slew of commodities and new resources that we can do millions of new things with and come up with new uh, solutions to new problems. I mean, just, just absolutely crazy. The degree of specialization and expansion of the economy that you can get from, that, that build on top of each other, right? As soon as you start freeing people up to create a technology or an industry that makes everyone in it that much more productive, you turn right around and free up more time. And now, like, Barely a few percent of the entire economy has anything to do with farming and food. So that essentially required a massive innovation in scaleness. And, and with that increased speed and the increased production, at the exact same time, it actually opened up a, uh, a new vulnerability to the hardness problem. Because if we're producing massive amounts of new value at a faster rate, it means that the, the currency should actually uh, go through deflation rather quickly because we're increasing our production. We have more goods uh, being chased by the same amount of money. But what that means is that fractional reserve is actually much easier to hide. It's much easier than, like, nobody's going to notice or think that, oh, my currency should get more valuable next year. If it stays roughly the same amount of value, they can basically take a haircut of 3%, 4% off the top of the economy because the economy got 3 or 4% more productive. And they can essentially get away with those things because of, of essentially debasing the now virtual currency, issuing more banknotes than they actually have for assets in reserve. Uh, and institutionalized fractional reserve banking, which is exactly what they did. So in more ways than one, this led to a huge vulnerability in some of the more critical aspects of, of what creates a good money. So we got that scale. Into, and now what's funny is that like you look at like people in crypto and like all this stuff, people don't even think about Scaleness is now the only aspect of money that anybody even thinks about. Like if you talk to the average person who's like in crypto or whatever, they don't even think about the fact of hardness or like sound money as being like an important factor. Not only that being the most, the most important factor, the factor that 
was the very foundation for the reason scaleness even mattered. Like scaleness is completely arbitrary if you don't have a hard asset to scale. Um, and so it's, it's not seen as that, that fundamental aspect was lost. So now people think that the, the idea of money or the whole purpose of money is just to have a bunch of good, like, uh, a huge transaction count, which is totally arbitrary. It's second, third, fourth layers kind of stuff, but getting a little ahead of ourselves there. A funny thing in this article is he uh, says that the e-gold thing is purely fictional. Um, you may know, you may not. Um, but for those who don't, uh, the e-gold story is an entirely true story. Um, uh, this was, um, uh, which funny about e-gold, it was done by Douglas Jackson. And there's actually a handful of uh, essentially um, very, very similar stories to this. This is not the only story. Uh, that that coincides with this, particularly during the 80s, the 90s, and the early 2000s. Um, uh, there was uh, Digicash. Um, there was like some sort of Cybercoin thing. Microsoft, I think. I think it was a deal with Microsoft that Chom, uh, David Chom, the head of Digicash, um, and I think Adam Back actually worked with him. If that was Zabo. I don't know. One of the one of the cypherpunks. Um, uh, but, uh, he, there was even like talks of like working it into Microsoft windows so that there was like this kind of, uh, base layer, uh, interoperability with a digital cache. Um, I mean, this was tried over and over and over again, a number of different ways. I mean, if you want to dig into the history of cypherpunks, we have so many, uh, so many pieces on like the precursors to Bitcoin and some of the centralized, um, uh, basically forefathers of of the attempt at creating a digital money uh e-gold is uh e-gold got pretty damn big um but of course it got shut down along with a whole bunch of other things there's another guy i can't remember his name uh who got caught just coining the liberty dollar just coining gold coins like it was just straight gold he just made his own coin like basically just competing with the stamp of uh, of the government. Like it wasn't even like a virtual thing or, uh, selling like a note. He just literally just put a Liberty dollar, like a, a certain type of coin onto the gold coin and then sold it as a gold coin of like an ounce or, you know, whatever it was. And he straight up got arrested, put in jail and had a massive amount of gold confiscated from him. Like the government does not let these centralized things happen. Um, they, they have all been shut down or hindered in massive ways or, you know, require some ridiculous level of regulatory compliance that's essentially impossible. It, it's, it's essentially a, way, a, a really roundabout, convoluted way of introducing a cost that says, you're just not going to do this, sorry. Um, and uh, 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 the story behind Douglas Jackson with eGold was that it actually became pretty pretty successful um it was pretty amazing uh as as big as it got but then of course he got uh arrested and uh was told essentially for oh he wasn't doing his due diligence um to uh prevent uh prevent like drugs and uh criminal activity with the e-gold um because 
you know, essentially he wasn't just overly tracking and policing every single transaction and, you know, confiscating or freezing accounts of anyone who had any sort of suspicion, which is what the government wanted them to do. Um, which is not true. The government didn't want them to do that. Government wanted them shut down. Um, so this was just the excuse to do that. And then the, uh, he basically set into a plea deal saying, okay, I'm guilty. Um, uh, and a bunch of people said, you know, like, you know, digital currency is the future. Like, like we can't like just shy away from this. Like this is going to happen. We should really just work on like trying to get them in compliance. Um, and, uh, but essentially the plea deal, um, uh, basically disqualified e-gold from ever being able to actually be regulatory compliant. Um, so, and this was the only way for him to avoid prison. So it was like either lose your life or lose your company. Um, and so they shut down the company. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a really obnoxious story. It's, it's one of the many, 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 many travesties of justice that is our uh, uh, sarcastic justice system. But basically, over and over with the story of money, with the story of digital money, and with the story of uh, virtual money, of, of banknotes, um, that actually worked really well um, and had limited uh, counterparty like fallout when we were in the free banking era and we had banknotes. And every banknote was essentially a liability to the bank. So like, like looking at today, like I would have a PNC banknote or a Wells Fargo banknote, or a Bank of America banknote. Like, everything would be it, uh, like explicit to the bank. And then if PNC went out of business, my banknotes were worthless. But if I was holding Wells, Wells Fargo notes, it was still worth a dollar. It was still worth the same amount. Um, and that actually worked really well, because there was no systemic risk. If, you know, one bank was irresponsible, the responsibility of the other banks basically made up the difference. And their notes, kind of like trading stock in what their reserves were really in a sense um their note was devalued based on their irresponsibility so um people would just stop accepting it so like Giacomo says in this article is that that free banking system actually kept that centralized vulnerability in check and then of course Mallory comes around here comes the bully and says guess what we're nationalizing this bank. I am going to be the one issuing the notes. It's going to be entirely virtual. Um, they it gets away with it to begin with, with, uh, you know, 50 years or 60 years of pretending it's backed by gold um, and makes all competitors, e-gold, Digicash, all, any, any competitor, Liberty Dollar, uh, 100% illegal and, you know, smashes them into the ground with any legal recourse that they can, institutes legal tender laws, um, which obviously we have, uh, every, every fiat government, um, uh, has legal tender laws. That is, that is basically the staple of what makes a government government. Now they are the jurisdiction that has the monopoly on violence and the monopoly on issuing a currency. And the currency is not backed by anything. It's backed on the fact that the government tells you, you have to use it. Um, and that's the state of money today. Um, it's a really, really awful devolution in the security, the hardness and the darkness of money. We've gone major, major, major steps backward, largely because we had to step forward so quickly in scaleness. Uh, essentially the, the, the 
the the problem of uh, monetary hardness moving into the virtualization phase was so unbelievably complicated and we needed to it was so expedient that we figured out the scaleness problem that we just let hardness die. But this is a transitional phase. This is not something, and this is why when like I talk about Bitcoin, like so many times I have a conversation with people and it's like, oh, well, it might work, you know, it could be interesting. It's like, no, this is a fundamental change in money. This is, this is solving a 150, 200 year problem that there's, there is no like, we might use it if it creates, if it sustains digital scarcity and digital verification, which is everything that Bitcoin is about, it will move to that, period. There is a vast history of money and competing monies that proves exactly what happens when monies compete. And the, the reason this hasn't happened already is because every, com every competitor was inherently centralized. There was nothing that could actually provide in the digital environment, in this new ecosystem that is now the internet, that wasn't centralized. Therefore, everything that even began to be successful was shut down, was stopped, or was regulated into obscurity. This can't happen to Bitcoin. This Bitcoin does not have these vulnerabilities. Bitcoin is decentralized. It is an entirely new game. It is an entirely new game now. And people just don't understand what level of shift that is. This is truly moving from a 50,000-year evolution of plan A to full virtualization from the discovery and emergence of money in the economy into the digital equivalent, into hardness and decentralization in an entirely new ecosystem. Uh, there's a huge, huge transition happening here, and it is not on the scale of like, Oh, ever since mobile phones, money's been, this is a fancy new way to do money. No, this only makes sense on the scale that Giacomo is laying this out. This is on the scale of thousands of years worth of importance as far as this innovation is. And I, and I don't know how, how better to beat that into the brain of whoever is listening um, is that this is not a minor thing this is not like oh we just made a new app oh uh oh it needs to do more transactions per second like this is a massive breakthrough and he gets into it uh really well with part five digital scarcity which we will do maybe friday um actually yeah yeah we'll bring it back on friday i'm gonna do guys take tomorrow so don't miss that one this is such a good piece and and uh, the series just gets better as we get towards the end so don't miss it. Stay subscribed to Bitcoin Audible. Uh, huge thank you to Giacomo for this one and for Bitcoin Magazine being such an amazing source. Um, uh, if you guys actually with the bull run coming back up, like it's going to be hard to get uh, uh, your Bitcoin Magazine physical copies and they are amazing. I love the one. I've read the one that I got from Bitcoin 2020. 19 uh like twice now um i don't know they haven't done one this year uh so i don't know what they're gonna do with bitcoin 2020 i hope they do another issue um but i've still got my unopened issues from from way back when uh i hope one day to have the whole collection but i'm not i'm not there i've only got like six or seven of the old ones um but anyway i'll link to the uh 
uh, Bitcoin Magazine store just because I, I forget to mention it. And I know some of you might be geeks like me and want your physical Bitcoin Magazine copies. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for them, uh, to them for uh, publishing this work. And of course, for sharing this show out on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network with so many other awesome shows um, in the Bitcoin space. So with that, get your 10 free dollars if you aren't stacking sats with Swan Bitcoin. Go to swanbitcoin.com slash guy. That is my referral link and it will show you, it will show them how much you love me and Bitcoin Audible and it will also get you $10 uh, free worth of sats to start off your savings plan. And you buy, you buy all the time. You just, you just go to sleep and you know that you are always stacking Bitcoin. I get my, I get my, auto stacking email every week and it is the, just the happiest it, not, a, not a better way to start off your week than knowing that you bought Bitcoin and you didn't have to do anything and it auto withdraws to your multi-sig which is what I got and I just love it I love it so I uh, can't promote it enough swanbitcoin.com slash guy and thank you so much for listening this is Bitcoin Audible I am Guy Swan the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know and until next time, take it easy, guys.